usual for them, right? We're being inundated with text messages and Snapchats, and we've got our teachers asking us things and our parents asking us things and our coaches and our teammates and blah, 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 blah. There's so much noise. It's no wonder we're living in a world that is distracted. And so finding a way to come back to the present moment, not only is going to activate that rest and relaxation, our parasympathetic nervous system, and allow us to think more clearly and allow us to not make as We're many- listening to the Bridging Impact Podcast, transforming leaders on and off the court with host Coach Furtado. Without further ado, let's dive in. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Bridging Impact Podcast. Today, my guest is Sienna Sylvester. She is a certified mental performance consultant and the creator and owner of Mental Flex. She has her master's in athletic counseling and works with youth, high school, and collegiate athletes. We're going to have our conversation today on the mental side of sports. So welcome to the show, Sienna. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. You got it. So let's dive right in. Um, the first question we always ask is, how has sports specifically made an impact on your life? Yeah, you know, sport was always something consistent for me in my life. I grew up in a in Massachusetts, in Central Mass, and uh, the family life was pretty chaotic and could at times be dysfunctional. Uh, the consistency was that I always had uh, competitive cheerleading practice or games or competitions, and that was a consistency in my life. Um, so from a very young age, it was something I could always count on was to have sport. Unfortunately, in my uh, freshman year on the varsity team at my high school, I hyperextended my elbow doing a standard backwards gymnastics skill. And went through physical therapy after that. And I thought I was going to be a physical therapist when I grew up, like this was great. Unfortunately, I never got that backward motion skill back. And the biggest challenge was the mental game, was being able to overcome that fear of re-injury, not getting distracted and stuck inside my head when it came time to applying that skill. And even though I was assured by so many medical professionals that I was physically capable and cleared, to go back to sport and do this skill, I really had struggled mentally with the ability to get over that mental block. Um, and in college, I decided to take a, a psychology course and I realized that recovery from injury is just as much mental as it is physical. And I look back on my athletic career and I say, oh, if only I had had a sports psychology consultant to help me work through that, I uh, potentially could have reached higher levels in the sport and been able to maintain that for a longer period of time um, and just felt more fulfilled in my athletic career. So sport has had such a big impact on my life personally, um, creating stability, creating challenge, um, going from good to great, finding ways to overcome the mental blocks that come with sport. And it's just been uh, something that I'm really passionate about since I was a little kid. Awesome. Yeah. And I know that we both share very similar values in, in our love for sport. And so, you know, with that, you talked about hyperextending your elbow and the challenge, the mental challenge of coming back from that. And I know that there's probably a ton of people that are, you know, listening, whether it's a similar situation, like physically or, you know, like mentally, we have all these hurdles. And so, you know, you briefly touched on kind of that path you thought you were going to go down with PT and then discovering kind of 
the mental side of sports and becoming like a mental performance consultant. Can you talk about the why you really wanted to kind of shift from kind of the physical side of, you know, physical therapy towards like, you know, becoming a mental performance coach? Yeah, you know, the injury is such a tough experience for athletes. And it is so common to experience injury. You know, the athletic career is pretty short, uh, depending on if you play through high school or you get to be one of those small percentage of people who actually play at the collegiate level and even smaller percentage of people who play at the professional level. It is likely that in that time you're going to get injured. What I find is that a lot of people, if you're listening to this, you're probably a high performer and you're asking yourself, well, what am I going to gain out of this conversation? So let's just assume that most people listening to this podcast are trying to better themselves or better their son or daughter or player. And what oftentimes happens with high performers is we maybe get injured for the first time and it's like a shock to our system. Like this has never happened to me before. I'm used to being one of the best players on my team. I'm used to things like I work hard, I'm disciplined. And because of that, things come relatively easy for me. And I find I actually had a conversation with an athlete the other day who just signed up for mental performance coaching, who hadn't experienced an injury in her career until she got to the college level. And what she's finding is that just adapting to this mindset that I'm now a player that has had an injury, and now I feel very isolated from the team. Uh, maybe I can't participate as much as I'd like to, even though I'm physically present there. You know, there's a million NCAA rules that, you know, allow only a certain amount of time on the court, for example, in basketball or whatnot. And what I found, the reason, getting back to your question, the reason I went into the mental game is that none of that is physical. And it has such an impact on an athlete's career and their trajectory of where they want to go. So a player could be looking at their college experience. Now they're an injured player. They could be saying, well, I've got to get back to how I used to be. You know, I've got to get back to, you know, the number of points I used to score in a game or being able to move with that level of mobility so that I can reach the goals that I had set for myself before injury. And oftentimes we're so stuck on the past. We're so stuck on what used to be instead of accepting the new reality. Like I am a player that has an injury. It is no wonder I'm having such a hard time dealing with the fact that I can't play every day. I don't have my stress reliever every day. I, it's no wonder you're so stressed out, you know, physically you used to get all of that out and none of that is related. Uh, I mean, a lot of it is related, but the main focus is not on the mental game. And there's such a lack of presence and influence on the mental game that it has when it comes to things like sport injury. And I just feel like because there's such a lack of um, concentration on that, there's such a big opportunity to give athletes a chance at reaching even greater levels of potential than they had before they were injured. It just gives that glimmer uh, into what can be, not what could have been. And so I just really believe that if we paid a little more attention to the mental game, that you could see players get to their highest potential quicker because they're not trying to figure out what works for them on their own because um, they've got that support, right? A player, a 
a baseball player who's hitting, right? If they're trying to fix their hitting stance, right? Or the way that they swing a bat, they're not going to never go to a hitting lesson, right? If they want to be a competitive player, they're going to sign up for hitting lessons. Like, I don't know what's going on here. Like my mechanics are not working. They're not going to spend years trying to figure out the new way to swing the bat. So it works for them. But for whatever reason, athletes wait years, if at all, to seek out mental performance coaching. They wait until there's a major problem to find somebody like me to help guide them through that. So I just love that the certified, being a certified mental performance consultant allows athletes to get, build a greater awareness and reach their goals quicker because you're not just on an island trying to figure it out all by yourself. Um, same with an injured athlete. You're not on an island trying to navigate injury all by yourself, right? You've got somebody else in your corner, just like a physical coach would be, helping you manage a really big aspect of sport. Yeah, 100%. I think one of the running themes that I hear in your in the why and just the importance of mental sports coaching is being present right? Being present with where we are at, right? It's a lot of times we wish like, oh, I remember, you know, like even for us who are, you know, maybe coaches, I, I remember when I was in shape and I was in high school, right? We, we like want to go back to that or, you know, for the athlete who got injured, I wish I was, you know, that I, I actually just had an athlete the other day was like, I, I, I used to be able to get up like four or five more inches before the injury coach. So like literally exactly kind of what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. And so before we kind of dive into that, um, you know, presence and the importance of presence, I want to talk talk about kind of what you're talking about with physical coaching, but there are a lot of coaches that completely ignore the mental side of the game. And so if you talk about and share a little bit of, you know, kind of, you know, inside tips, advice on how to incorporate that like mental side of the game into, you know, let's say for me and my basketball programming, but also I'm also a basketball team coach as well. Yeah. You know, that's such a good question because oftentimes I get brought into athletic departments colleges, high schools, and I will be in a position where I'm pitching to them what the benefits are to adding a mental performance consultant to their staff. And there are some coaches who are so bought in, right? They're like, I totally recognize that the mental game matters. We're not doing enough to train it. We need you, right? You've got that maybe 20%. Yeah. Then you've got like the 50% of coaches who are like, well, as long as it's not going to like change the way that I'm doing things or bother me or get in my way, sure. Like they can come in and do mental performance coaching. And then you've got the, you know, bottom half who are super resistant and don't believe in it. They think it's soft that, you know, teams who hire a mental performance coach, it's because they just can't figure out a way to win and their coaches aren't experienced enough. And, you know, the list goes on. I choose personally not to focus on those bottom half because those people are not ready for change. Um, when it comes to building a mental performance component into the current philosophy of a coach's approach and style, we've got to cultivate the buy-in. What's in it for you to cultivate this in? Um, and how can we implement it into an existing structure? So it could be as simple as adding a mindful moment at the beginning of your practice, right? Every coach says, leave everything that's going on outside of sport at the door, right? 
or before you walk into the field. Every coach says some version of that, but they don't actually train athletes or provide an opportunity for athletes to do that, right? They just think that they're a robot and they're going to flick off a switch. And it's like, my whole life has just come on hold because I stepped into the gym. You know, like that's just not real reality. And so adding something like a mindful moment at the beginning, I think I just lost you in my headphones. Can you still hear me? Okay. I think um, adding a mindful moment, something as simple as one minute that allows people to arrive to practice, give them an opportunity to let go of all of those things. And you can train coaches how to do this. You don't have to be a certified mental performance consultant to do this. Um, but allowing that moment can allow athletes to transition into sport, right? And that goes into the presence, which I think we're going to talk about soon. But that's mental performance coaching doesn't have to be, okay, you commit to eight weeks, uh, twice, twice a week, all of your players are in a room and you're doing workshops and you're doing one-on-one -on -one coaching. Yes, that is one way and probably a very effective way. But oftentimes it's not realistic to what the current culture is allowing. And so I think it's important to get the buy-in. What's the science behind mental performance coaching? Who are the best in the world that are using it? Okay. Every Olympic athlete has a sports psychology consultant. Every MLB team has a, not just one, but a team of mental performance consultants, right? So if the best in the world are using these services and it's good enough for them, what's stopping you? What's getting in your way of providing the service to your players? So get that buy-in, cultivate that awareness. Hey, this is a field. Some people don't even know it's a field. Here's the desire. Here's how it can help you, right? Now, how do we give you the knowledge and abilities so that you can implement it into your current coaching style? And then how do we reinforce it over time? So I would often ask organizations, uh, different athletic groups, you know, not only are we going to train, you know, how to build confidence, how to manage attention, how to uh, like respond to pressure in the moment. How can we train you as the coach to reinforce what's learned in this workshop? Because coaches are the ones spending the most time with the players. If they're not bought in, it's not that athletes won't benefit. You're just not going to see that culture shift that every player is reflecting on their performance at it after a game. Only maybe the people who are bought in who are getting that one-on-one -on -one coaching are doing that, right? So especially in team sports, it's critical that the entire team maybe has the same philosophy um, so that you can move toward a unified goal with the same approach. So it can be really tough. I would love to say that it's easy. Um, it's not. It is easy to implement the mental game. It doesn't have to be these big, long spurts. You can do the short spurts. Um, and by getting a mental performance consultant involved before you're going through like a slump, right? You're all losing. Like get them involved early. Train it in your culture often. Set the rules and expectations at the start of the season. And by the way, then communicate that mes message five to seven times throughout the season so it's not like oh yep coach always starts us off we're going to focus on the mental game then we never do it right right because then you're going to create resistance and a, you're not going to have that that trust that you need with athletes 
to to change what they're already doing and implement a new skill. Yeah, 100%. So as you know, kind of what I've here, you know, there are a couple of different options, right? Kind of depends on the agent stage and how much time you have as a coach. Mm -hmm. um, and then just diving in, you know, I'd love for you to kind of expand on that, that principle of presence that you're talking about and the other principles that you teach in terms of your know, mental performance coaching. Yeah, there's so many skills. I will tell you, my philosophy is I don't jump right into skills with players. Um, I, my belief is that you're a person first and you're an athlete second and you have other roles and identities within your life and it's important to nurture those um so something that's happening off the field could be influencing you on the field let's get really clear on that so my approach is first to start with building self-awareness let's assume okay great we've now got a better understanding of who this athlete is what their mental model is what rules they have for themselves and then from there, we go into, okay, what skills might help this athlete? Where do we start? Um, a foundational skill that I teach to almost every single athlete, despite learning about them, um, is mindfulness, right? And mindfulness, uh, based on Dr. John Kabat-Zinn, who is the uh, world leader in mindfulness-based stress reduction, um, fun fact, he created the mindfulness-based stress reduction program where I was born in Worcester, Massachusetts. Um, and I have taken the course myself, so I practice what I preach. But the oftentimes people think that mindfulness is meditation and they think they're the same. Meditation is a way to achieve a mindful state. So what is mindfulness? It's the act of paying attention in a particular way on purpose in the present moment and non-judgmentally. So there's a lot there in that definition and all of those terms are very important. The most important is in the present moment and non-judgmentally. So oftentimes, especially with the younger athletes, I would say high school and below, achieving a mindful state is really unusual for them, right? We're being inundated with text messages and Snapchats, and we've got our teachers asking us things and our parents asking us things and our coaches and our teammates and blah, 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 blah. There's so much noise. It's no wonder we're living in a world that is distracted. And so finding a way to come back to the present moment, not only is going to activate that rest and relaxation, our parasympathetic nervous system, and allow us to think more clearly and allow us to not make as many mistakes because we're focused on what's important now, it also provides athletes with an opportunity. So that's the personal life. The personal benefit is you're more present, you're happier, you're more engaged. But let's say a baseball player who's in the box is so curious about, you know, am I going to get a hit? Am I going to get on base, right? They're thinking about the result. Okay. That's forward thinking. That's future. Or maybe we're stuck on the last at bat. Oh my God, I swung at this pitch. I knew that wasn't my pitch. I shouldn't have did that. Or like, I hate that. I hate that pitch. I hate change-ups. Like, you know, whatever those words are, if we're stuck on all of that noise in the past or we're stuck on all that noise in the future, hitting a baseball is already really difficult. And now you've got all this noise, right? So it is a skill to be able to recognize, here's where the mindfulness comes in, my thoughts have drifted. I'm not thinking about the present moment. And with kindness and being gentle to ourselves, just acknowledging I'm distracted. 
I want to concentrate on what's important now, what's happening in the present moment. And the biggest thing here is athletes don't think that this is a skill because it requires effort. They think like, oh, I must be doing it wrong. Right. Oh, I'm so bad at mindfulness. I hate breathing. I hate doing all of that stuff. Like I, I always get distracted. Mindfulness, the goal is not to not get distracted. Over time, yes, that's a benefit. You get distracted less by practicing mindfulness more often. The goal is to notice that you've become distracted and bring yourself back to the present moment as quickly as possible. And then I ask athletes, what would be the benefit of being able to notice my mind is somewhere else right now and being able to actually bring yourself back to your anchor? That's what we call it. Oftentimes it's your breathing. And what would it be like to do that without being so judgmental, without saying like, I suck at this. This is so annoying. This is frustrating. So that's one of my core, core uh, skills that I do teach is the act of mindfulness. And I do that through one building self-awareness of noticing where, when does my mind drift the most, right? So what are your, what are your green lights? I'm most present when, all right, I've got some hits, you know, I'm having a great day. Things are going really well. I'm able to stay more in the moment. Oftentimes athletes describe this as being in the zone. Then we've got the yellow lights, which are, this is our warning signals that say, I'm starting to lose my focus. Okay. I made an error in the field, right? Or maybe in basketball, I missed uh, my last three free throws, right? Or I missed my last free throw or I didn't win the jump ball or whatever it is. Those could be triggers for certain athletes. Coach said X, Y, Z to me, and it pissed me off. And now I'm aggravated. If we can identify what those warning signals are, we can come up with a routine, a reset routine to come back to green. Oftentimes, as we know, drivers do, they blow through the yellow lights because they're very quick to get to their destination. There's a big risk in doing that. If we go into the red light zone, which is where we've totally lost control, it's not impossible to come back from there, but it can be really difficult to get back to green. So being able to notice what those warning lights, bringing the awareness to the athlete to know what are the warning signals for me personally that I'm starting to lose control. So we start there. Then we do mindfulness, things like breathing, things like a neurofeedback device called Focus Calm, which measures your brainwave activity. Um, the cool thing about that device is that it's measuring it um, with your eyes open. Oftentimes, a lot of those neurofeedback devices are for sleep and your eyes are closed. And we know that almost every athlete everywhere does not play the game with their eyes closed. So it's very important that you're able to do this skill with your eyes open. Right. Um, so those are two ways that you can work to kind of cultivate a more mindful state. And um, I also go into like the science of attention and all of those things. We work toward that. Um, but we really start with building awareness, coming up with a reset routine. How do you implement mindfulness? Not just like at home when you're trying to fall asleep, but like in the moment, right? Where in your play is it appropriate to do a mindful moment? You know, a soccer player who's just been running, you know, the whole game, they're 60 minutes in and they're fatigued and they're tired. They're not just going to like get subbed out and do a mindful moment and come back in. Right. So we have to also work with players within the constraints that they're in. How do we implement this now on the field, on the court, 
right on the golf course, whatever that is for them, um, tailoring it so that just like the coaches who want to maybe put mental performance coaching into their existing style, how do we now help athletes implement mental skills into their existing constraints of the environment that they play? That was a lot of really great information. So I want to just make sure I summarize, get it right. So we're talking about number one is right, building that self-awareness. And you kind of went into, I had some follow-up questions, but a lot of it's around the dialogue. I think asking those questions of like, what's the benefit, right? Getting them to kind of think about the positive side of things instead of, because I feel like sometimes maybe how I present it or other coaches may present an idea, right? Of building self-awareness, oh, it feels like a chore, right? But if you mm -hmm. present the benefit and like they can perform at a higher level, right? They'll, they'll be able to buy into it a little bit more like you were talking about previously. And then having that reset routine, um, once we kind of recognize, you know, some of the, the green light, right? When we're doing well and, and the yellow light, and I can see how this could be like really beneficial um, outside of sports too. Like in, in terms of like, for me, I obviously I live in LA, it's car culture getting cut off, kind of like you're talking about, mm -hmm. there's a lot of yellow lights, a lot of things going on. And I know for me also, and, I, and I'm sure for you as, you know, uh, uh, you know, someone with a full-time job and and, you know, kind of a business owner, right? We have all these thoughts all the time. And then we also have personal lives, right? So being able to recognize and not necessarily control, right? I think that's probably been the biggest shift I personally have is redirecting those thoughts, like not necessarily getting mad about, oh, my mind's drifting, but just practicing. It's a skill to redirect those thoughts, like through that mindfulness. So I'm curious, you know, as you continue to help athletes build that mindfulness and continue to redirect and, and set those reset routines, like, you know, I think sometimes one of the things I've heard in the basketball world is like a, mis a mistake clap. So you do two claps, like after you make mm -hmm. a mistake. And so that's like a reset routine, basically just to wash it away. Or, you know, I don't know. I've also heard of, you know, some teams like literally flushing a toilet just yep. after a loss, you know, like, so there are different oh, yeah. things that a team can do, right. That can mentally kind of just clear you. So yeah, you there's know, so many yeah. cues. Yep. The clapping is one with uh, baseball players. We do progressive muscle relaxation. So the squeezing of the bat, right. That's a productive way to release that frustration, physically turning your body and looking out into the foul pole or with a basketball player, I might have them physically turn their body and look up at the score scoreboard, right? Or look up at the top of the basket, use some self-talk, right? Not motivational self-talk. Oh, just let it go. Like blah, blah, blah. Maybe it's more like instructional self-talk. It's like, what's important now? What do I want to focus on? Um, some athletes can't just flip a switch, right? It's not as easy as just kicking the dirt or um, like you said, flushing the toilet. Sometimes we need to acknowledge and validate that like, hey, that really sucked, right? And so re redirecting your attention, it's also noticing when is it appropriate to process that crappy thing that just happened. During performance, it is not a productive time to be hard and tough on yourself. If that worked, we'd all be great by now, right? If we could just if being self-critical in the middle of a game helped us get better for the rest of the game, everyone would be great. So it's being able to recognize and, and notice, okay, this is not the time to be re reflecting and processing that mistake, right? A more productive time to do that, right? We don't want to store that energy and let it build up because then we're going to have an outburst because our bodies can only take so much. 
our stress stress system can only take so much. We do still need to process that stuff, right? It's just not during performance. We got to do that after in our reflection. What was good about that performance physically and mentally? What could have been better and how can I do it differently next time? That's a productive way, right? To say that really did suck, right? It's no wonder I'm feeling so down on myself after I made that mistake. Here's how I'm going to address it the next time I'm in that situation. And the other comment I wanted to make is that getting the buy-in for athletes, oftentimes I see coaches and parents, especially, mm-hmm. um, just telling their players, like, this this is what you did wrong. Like, why can't you just get it right? We spent all this time on training. Like, you should just be able to do this by now. You can do it in practice. Why can't you do it in a game? And they're so frustrated, Right. So instead of telling them all the stuff that they screwed up and telling them that, you know, they can do it, right? It's all coming with the best intention. It's just pushing them further away from change. Change is an internal process that needs to happen. And so instead of asking a question like, okay, I'm, I'm, and also timing matters, right? Maybe not on the car ride home. Maybe they're still really pissed off, right? That might not be the time to ask this question. So ask yourself, When is an appropriate time to ask my player this, right, as a coach or as a parent? And then you ask them something along the lines of, I'm really curious, how did you feel like that at bat went for you? Oh, well, I did X, Y, Z wrong. Like, I I really screwed that up. So what action are you going to take to learn a little bit more about that? How can I help you achieve that? Asking the question, instead of pointing out all of the answers, right? We call this the writing reflex, just trying to fix it, making it right. Instead of just jumping right into that, just get curious without an agenda of trying to push them in a direction. You will notice that you're more likely to get the result that's positive by asking those questions, those open-ended questions, instead of just telling them everything that's wrong, which they probably already know. Right. A hundred percent. Yeah. Cause in you're helping them, right. You, you talked about changes in internal process, right? If we always like spoon feed them, the answers like, why did you do this? Or why did you do that? Instead of like saying, Hey, you know, let's talk baseball wise. Like, what did you see on that curveball Right. When they swung our yeah. base, right. Like, Oh, you know, like I was out on my front foot and kind of getting them. That's how they learn. Right. They have that learning process. And one of the things that, you know, you kind of touched on at the, you know, beginning of when you were talking, just talking about that instructional self-talk. Um, so one of the things that I've been learning or I know, like, I'm not sure what the exact thing is that if you like are thinking, like I'll, I'll use myself, for example, if I like am thinking too much when I play, like go down, up, shoot, right? Like you want to flow. Um, you don't want to be thinking exactly. So what's the proper way to like mentally give ourselves reminders about to flow instead of like trying to give ourselves like specific instructions and we're thinking because I know I'm drawing a blank on the on the word for it. But like when our thoughts are are like when we're thinking about acting like it's not a natural motion. That makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of a lot of words that could come to mind for what you're describing, like a lot of different sports psych theories. And it's really common. Like when we're learning a new skill, oftentimes we do need that many cues in order to follow it. But let's say you're a basketball player and you're in high school or you're at the college level and like you find yourself thinking in that very like step one, step two, step three kind of way for a layup right? Something that your body just knows how to do. You've been doing it probably since you were five or six years old, 
right? Playing at the college level. So oftentimes we're too internal. So this is Netifer's styles of attention. And what you're describing is, is we're very internal and we're very narrow. We're very specific, right? And oftentimes this is where athletes choke under pressure, right? We're so, we're so in our heads that we can't focus on what's happening in the external environment and react to it. And so we are not flowing as you described it, right? We're so internal. So oftentimes we've got to just, first of all, we have to recognize again, self-awareness. Hey, I'm, I'm too in my head right now, right? I know this because I'm telling myself every single step I need to take to go take a layup, right? So I've got the evidence that supports I'm too in my head right now. What we need to do is shift our attention externally, right? And it, at that point, it doesn't really matter if it's narrow or broad, but for example, a, a pitcher who has the yips, right? God, yep, I said it. Nobody panic. Um, a pitcher who has the yips and can't throw it over to first base for whatever reason is very in their head. They're very much thinking like, you know, what if I miss? What if I overthrow it? Like a run's going to score and all these things are going to happen. And like, God, I'm such a sucky pitcher, whatever those thoughts are internally. And then let's say he's like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to lift my leg at this point, And then this is going to happen. It's still very internal step-by-step -step process. We want to shift our attention externally and narrow, right? See the spot, hit the spot. Hmm. That's very simple. That's very clear on what you want the brain to do. Oftentimes, what I, the mistake I see players making is don't mess up. Don't overthrow it, right? Don't shoot it between his legs, right? Whatever those thoughts are that you do not want to do, you've just given your brain the instruction of what you want it to do because the brain doesn't recognize contractions. So instead of saying don't overthrow it, Instead, you might want to say, like, hit him in the chest, right? Give your brain the instruction of what you want it to do. This is can go for, like, even parents who have little kids. Instead of saying, don't hit, hey, Johnny, don't hit Tommy. Don't hit him. Instead, we want to use the instruction, keep your hands to yourself. You're trying to achieve the same outcome. It's just a different instruction. Absolutely. Yeah, I remember having this conversation on our on our pre podcast call, because that was something that I realized I had a communication coach Betsy Buderick on last year around this time. And it was the same thing. I was like, Oh, my goodness, right? Like, as basketball coaches, we always yell, don't foul. Or, you know, mm -hmm. like, if you're a baseball coach, it's like, um, I'm trying to think about it in terms of like, don't get fooled by the curveball or, or whatever it may be. We always yeah. use don'ts, right? Because if it makes sense to us, right? Don't do it. Um, and then we yeah. get really angry as coaches when our athletes do do it. Um, instead, it's like, you know, like yeah, for don't foul, right? Chest up, don't hands off, right? Move your feet, you know, and just giving reminders yep. like that is so totally. huge. Yeah. Yeah. You're spot on. You're spot on. Just adjusting that self-talk. And when the instructional self-talk becomes too repetitive, too step-by-step, -step, shift your attention externally, do a reset routine, simplify it, simplify it. And you might even, you know, if you're working with a mental performance coach, it can become very like more nuanced and complicated. Um, but we might, we might introduce visualization at that point, right? Let's reflect on some times where you've executed that skill very successfully. Right. Maybe we need to build our confidence that says, hey, wait, I actually do know how to do this skill. 
um, what was happening during my best performances. While I was focused on the square on the backboard and just driving up to that square and hitting it. I wasn't thinking about taking left foot, right foot, like whatever the steps are, you know? Um, So it just gives athletes an opportunity, one, to recognize here's what's going on and then potentially create a reset routine, shifting your attention, maybe using some visualization to pull on some previous experiences. But again, if you're doing this, if you're listening to this and you're like, I got to go do all this on my own, that's why working with a mental performance coach can be helpful because it can really direct where you might spend most of your time so you can get to that result quicker instead of trying to figure this all out by yourself. Right. That makes a ton of sense. And so you kind of, you briefly just touched on it right now as we kind of end, uh, enter our like, you know, eighth, ninth inning of our podcast, our, our two minute drill, as we'd like to say is like confidence is a big one when it comes to like the mental side of games. And you just touched on it a little bit, but you know, I'm sure you have a lot of athletes that come to you and are, are like, you know, like I was playing so well here and now I'm not. So where does that confidence develop? come from because i know so i mean obviously you have to do the preparation right like i always tell my athletes like you can't be confident at something you don't practice at and with intention right like i'm not going to be a great chef if i'm only making trader joe's frozen food right um so at the same time i think that's pretty good but pretty good yeah (laughs) i'll be able to walk into gordon ramsay's kitchen no problem yeah you got Um, it exactly but the mental side of things like how do athletes where does that confidence come from Yeah, you know, the myth about confidence is that, okay, players are just confident and they give them a label and they're like, oh, that's how it always is. Well, confidence is actually very fragile. And it's usually because we wait for the feeling of confidence in order to act confidence. And actually what we want to do is reverse the order of that. Confidence, the action, comes before confidence, the feeling. Okay. And this isn't fake it till you make it, right? Maybe some people believe in that and that's what works for them. This isn't fake it till you make it. We have to take back our power and our control that we have the abilities to do hard things, right? And so what I often find athletes doing is they wait for something good to happen, something successful to happen to feel confident. And if we always have to wait for those things, oftentimes a lot of those things are outside of our control, then we're saying we have no power and trust in our confidence abilities, right? We've given that away to the gods, kind of like a superstition. Instead, what we want to do is say, wait, I'm in control of my ability to be confident. What actions can I take that demonstrate confidence, right? And so what is your body language when you're walking up to the plate or the free free throw line? You know, what does a confident player do after they make a mistake? Are they, you know, punching the the cooler? Are they shaking their head? Are they showing their disappointment? All normal and common reactions, but those aren't aligned with a confident player who believes in themselves. So what are the behaviors that are aligned with that? Preparation is a huge one, right? You just mentioned this. If we're we're not nervous for a test that we studied for, we're not scared for an opponent that We've already studied the film. We feel confident in our abilities. We don't, confident people don't walk up to the plate and say, oh, I don't know if I can hit this guy, right? Instead, they say, I trust my abilities. I've done everything that I can to prepare for this moment. I'm ready for this. It's just because it requires effort 
doesn't mean that you don't have to be confident. Confidence can require effort. It's very fragile. It's very easy to lose if you're just waiting for something successful to happen. Um, on my Instagram, I have a highlight that talks about the nine sources of confidence. Um, so if someone's curious, they can go on there, click on the highlight that says confidence and see, okay, well, if I'm always waiting for something good to happen in order to feel confident, then I'm probably missing on a lot of opportunities to take that control back. And so how could I do that? What are the other nine sources? And how do I create those for myself in my life? Yeah, it's huge. Creating that confidence com comes internally. And I really like that, like action then leads to feeling. Um, I think that's kind of, that's a good breakdown even for, you know, athletes. And it's something that I've heard before, like reading, you know, like how, you know, kind of, a, you can tell like just body language wise, like how someone feels about their ability, you know, as they come up to the plate, as they go to the free throw line, right? Like just understanding that body language and kind of what it projects, you know, obviously to your teammates, but what it projects for yourself, right? When I'm, my shoulders are back and I kind of have like a little bounce in my step, right? Versus yeah. like, I'm like kind of stiff and rigid and like slowly walking with like a little bit of a nervous look, I'm looking down, like, you know, there's certain different cues and, and I'm sure, you know, that post breaks it down um, really well. So as we kind of wrap up and before I give you the opportunity to share more about, you know, mental flex, you know, what would your final pieces of advice be for the coaches and parents and some of the athletes that are listening to this episode with, you know, kind of how to step, you know, you know, uh, boiling down a lot of the wisdom that you just shared with them. Yeah, I think that to wrap it up is I would ask you, whoever's listening here, to ask yourself what percentage of your game is mental. And there's always a percentage. And then I would ask you to reflect on what action are you doing to build your ability to be mentally tough? What are you doing to train the mental game? If the answer is nothing, what do you want to do about it? What action do you want to take so that you can show up your best, um, even when it matters the most? And the last point I would make is do not wait until something is wrong to find a mental performance coach. Like you're selling yourself short. There's such an opportunity to be the best player that you want to be, the best coach that you want to be, the best parent that you want to be by finding the support and guiding you so that you can gain your mental game. So those would be my two pieces of advice that are reflect on what actually, what are you doing about your mental game, if at all? And how can you be proactive in your mental game instead of waiting for something like injury or a hitting slump or, uh, you know, I'm so stressed out, I can't even de-stress. Like, let's not wait for us to get to that point to seek out a mental performance coach. I love it. And so where can people find you to learn more? You know, if they want to connect with you on social media, you do drop great posts. And, you know, if they want to continue to work with you. Yeah, thank you so much. So you can go to my website, mymentalflex.com. And if anybody's interested, they can schedule a free consultation there. I'm very reachable and uh, very often on Instagram. So please Instagram mes message me at mymentalflex. Um, and that's where you can find more about me. Well, I appreciate you so much for coming on and sharing so much wisdom. I have multiple pages of notes and I'm going to have to distill it and how I want to make sure I, I give that back to the athletes. And I know that the coaches and parents got a lot out of this as well. So thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule, Sienna. Thank you so much. Really appreciate you having me on.
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Bridging Impact Podcast. We'd love it if you would like, subscribe, leave a comment, and a review on whatever platform you're on. It's the best way to help us grow. We appreciate you for doing that. We'll shout you out on social media. I'd also love if you connected with me on social media. Let me know your thoughts, and this is why I do it. I want to share knowledge and wisdom from experienced leaders to people like yourself and myself so we can have this dialogue and move forward make an impact on the world so stay tuned stay subscribed cheers